This is yours. You'll find out. All right, children, I invite you to come down if you would. Abraham, old father Abraham, uh, he lived a long, long time ago. See his hair is gray and stuff. Uh, he lived a long, long time ago. But something very, <laughs> something very important happened in his life, and God came and visited him and told him that he would make a covenant, an agreement with him, that he would promise to send a savior for his sins. And so when David was teaching his children, I'm sorry, when Abraham was teaching his children, he would tell them, one day, I will send a savior. And all of us will. Now you guys got to wait for a little more because we're going to have liberty today. You got to run this thing. All right. <laughs> Abraham went to put the way on And then one day, old Abraham died. And then we had to wait a long time, and wait a long time, and wait a long time. And people began to say, God will never send a Savior. Oh, my goodness. And they began to mock and tease. And they kept thinking God would never send a Savior. But one day, a Savior did come. Can you guess who? Yeah, you, you look at it, right? All right. <laughs> a Savior did come. What was his name? Who was the Savior? Jesus, right. And so Savior represents Jesus. And Jesus called some of his apostles... to heaven. 
couldn't see him anymore. But his followers kept telling people, Jesus, from the pastors and from other people, Jesus is coming again. And one day he will come for you and for me. And he will judge all of us and take those that belong to him from heaven. Remember over here, what, who's this guy? And Abraham said and promised who is coming? The Savior. And then he died. And then Jesus came. And who are these two guys? The apostles, and what do they keep reminding people of? Good. And they died. And so the pastor is saying, don't worry. I know it feels like a long time. But among the congregation, bless my soul, this one, there were mockers and scoffers. <laughs> you can tell I didn't uh, get this in perfect therapy here. And they keep claiming, Here, guys, if there's any left, you just can't. <laughs> you can go back and cry. Yeah. 
dangerous section. Uh, dangerous because what it implies. Dangerous because it, uh, it reminds us of how serious this moment is. And it's so easy to get distracted by the moments of our life and the busyness of our life. And we just seem to forget that uh, as he came, he is coming again. And we get busy thinking, well, everything is going to go on as it is. Every once in a while, you get a little bit of that tweaking that uh, you realize maybe even America won't keep going on as she was or is or any of those kind of things. Every once in a while, you have that sense of life doesn't keep going on. In our own lives, we have those major shifts. Uh, they happen when you're a certain age and you get a shift from, uh, from one school to another or one age to another. And every once in a while, there's a little bit of a, a maturing transition. Things are very different. You now can drive a car where before you couldn't. Now you can vote. Now you can move into each one of those different stages. And then that, that huge stage maybe of getting married or something like that. And everything changes. And then the dynamic of when you think you're just about adjusted to that, you maybe have a child and everything changes again. And uh, as you grow and mature, every once in a while you hit those points where life just simply escapes all control and you realize you cannot control your future. You realize you can't make your heart beat, your health stay, or anything else, that it is outside the parameters of your control. And whenever that hits you, you come into a deeper understanding and reality of what uh, Peter here is trying to get the people to cope with and understand. And so in this context, we are reminded that things don't always keep going on as they have, even though we sometimes feel like they do, even though in one sense there is still the same kind of day we seem like we had yesterday. There's still snow on the ground and all the rest. We realize that things do not keep going on as they always have. And so the challenge here comes this way. I have written you these things now a second time. Peter, when he writes, if he's emphasizing it, goes, I'm going to tell you again. And I'm going to tell you again because you need to remember. The apostles were now maybe not aware of what they call the rule of seven. The rule of seven is that any leadership has to tell the people seven times a directive in sometimes seven different ways or three or four different ways before you can be sure that the majority of them even heard it. Some of you hear it the very first time. Others have to be told repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. And some of you wives might uh, swear that your husbands, no matter how many times you tell them, can't remember or whatever the case might be. But that kind of rule of seven. Well, Peter is already up to his rule of two. I'm going to reemphasize this. I'm going to make it clear in your head as he points this out. I'm going to want to stimulate you. I want to encourage. I want to embolden you. I want you to understand this kind of flavor of what he's pointing out here. And by stimulate, he talks about uh, this encouragement that you understand that God really is speaking at this point. And he says, I want you to understand the importance of what I'm saying to you so that you are moved. Uh, one of the things that's really hard is to get us to move. I think I did that with you the other day. I said, fold your hands. Just fold them. Right? All right. Now reverse it. Put the other finger on top and feel the uncomfortableness of some slight change. And I said, even the slight change of one finger over the other, if you actually had to sit here in church holding your hands like that, you become very conscious of how difficult it is for people to change. I'm comfortable like this. I'm uncomfortable like this. Now I have to determine, is this lack of comfort 
worth the stress to me because it can distract me. It can cause me to think about other things. That little bit of a change in my life can alter everything. If I said, stand up and find a new seat, all the people in the back three rows, you come sit in front. Oh my goodness, those on this side switch to that side, those on this side switch to that side. You can't believe the comfort level and the distortion that we can go. And we're talking about mundane, foolish things. Imagine what the Spirit has when He tries to look upon you and me and says, Child, open your eyes. I can't have you maintaining the status quo. The status quo is not at all equipping you for what you're going to be dealing with. There's far more things you've got to be alert to. You're going to have to be far more prepared. Your life is going to have to change even before you see the need, even before you fully comprehend it. And so you are going to have to deal with discomfort of switching fingers, of moving your life in a new direction, and you are going to have to accept that this is now the way you're going to live in a continuous state of discomfort. Not discomfort that's evil or wicked, but the discomfort that brings wholeness and healing and the fullness of the Spirit into your life. The discomfort that takes you from that status quo and moves you in a brand new direction that allows God to speak a new word to your heart, a fresh wine, a new wine, a spirit that has to come upon you or you will find yourself lulled into the kind of everything is as it always was. And you have to understand this false prophet and these attitudes of these people, that doesn't come from outside the church, it comes from inside. Everything is status quo, we will keep it going as it always has been. And you understand how different God's Spirit's trying to work when he tries to make you understand nothing stays the same. Nothing is going to remain as it always was. If you knew what you were going to be dealing with, and that God's plan was to work you into preparing yourself for doing it, then you understand the same way an athlete might think about preparing for a game or a race. If I told you, I think I used that analogy before, that you were going to have to run to preserve your life. And if you don't run fast enough, you're going to get killed. And that's going to happen six months from now. And I look at you and I go, if I love you, from even the outside, if I had that word, I would work and do everything I possibly could to get you to turn off the TV, turn off everything else, and start walking, start running, and start moving, so that when the point comes in six months when you're either going to run and live or not run and die, you will be as prepared as I could get you to deal with what is coming upon you. And so here God, looking at the people, understanding the problems that we deal with, looks at this and he says, through Peter, I have reminded both in both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. God, remember kids? That was back there with Abraham. All the different people back through the Old Testament. We could have done more, but I didn't do more. And it says, by the holy prophets, excuse me, by the holy prophets, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so you have that analogy, kids, where here came Jesus, and the apostles learned the message. Jesus died and went and rose again and then ascended into heaven. And then the apostles sent the message. And finally, we're back into your time, kids, big kids, little kids, and the message hasn't changed. The message that we heard from Christ that was spoken of back there that he's coming again to judge both the living and the dead, 
that he's coming again to take you home, that he's coming again and prepared a place for you, that's part of the message that we have to be alert to and continuously being prepared to respond to. First of all, you have to understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Now you begin to understand the challenge. That's exactly what Marshall tried to illustrate. I don't believe it. I don't really think he's coming back. Everything is as it always was. The world is just moving along as it always will. Nothing really ever changes. Everything is the status quo. And you begin to understand how easy it is sometimes for people spiritually, certainly, sometimes uh, physically too, to understand that and believe that and understand how that continues to move on. And they will cry out, where is this coming he promised? Where is he? Now, that's not an unfair question, all right? That really isn't, because you have to understand, from the time of Abraham, certainly until the time of Christ, through all those generations, that cry is, wouldn't it be a good time for God to send the Messiah now? Wouldn't this be as bad as it is? Uh, in Fiddler on the Roof, there's that little scene where the, the, the Tevia, the fiddler, says, finally, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? Or someone asks him that, and the rabbi responds, we'll just have to go and wait for him someplace else. But you understand, generation upon generation have felt this would be the right time, this would be the best time, and this would be the, the needed time and that kind of thing. So these scoffers come, and they begin to follow their own evil desires. Because you have to understand, don't just picture evil desires as you know, something really horrid. Try to picture evil desires as living for myself. Try to picture evil desires as just doing life my way. Try to picture the compromise that creeps into your and my heart and those evil desires that rule and dominate our life and attitude, where we kind of float. And you felt this, certainly, where you're feeling healthy and life is good, and you play the odds and you go, I don't think I'm going to die today, and so I will play out this sinful behavior. I will play out that sinful behavior. And you play it out, and you say, well, I see, I survived. My life didn't end. I didn't get in a car accident. Nobody found out. I didn't get caught. I didn't contract a disease, and on and on and on. And you feel the rationalization that we're talking about in this section, that ability for God's people, those who say they know the promises of God, those who say they have tasted the presence of the Holy Spirit, yet at the same time, they get over here and say, I don't need that today, right now, pastor. I'm just a young man. You've got to understand, young men do what young men do. And you've got to understand, I can't be that good. I can't be that righteous. I don't want to follow God's will in this area or that. And they assume that because they're getting away with it, that somehow God's patience means there's a blessing or an acceptance of what they're doing, rather than the warning that's coming down here through Peter. It says these scoffers are going to rise, and they're going to follow their own evil desires. And I go, that is part of my life and my heart. Not that I intentionally scoff at Christ, but I scoff at him because I go, I think I can get away with this. And I walk that path, and that scoffing is that indirect making fun of and ridiculing and diminishing the commands and the demands of God upon my life diminishing what God has revealed to me through his word, through his apostles, through his prophets, knowing better than that, but still choosing to follow my own wickedness. They say, where is this coming? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And this verse 5 is 
they deliberately forget. They willingly, they choose, okay? Uh, they willingly forget. This escapes them of their own will. They let it go. They simply say, I won't believe that right now. Have you ever done that one? I just don't want to believe that right now. I don't really want to believe what God says about dating. I don't really want to believe what God says about obeying your parents. I don't really want to believe about what God tells me about husband and wife. I don't really want to believe that. I just don't want to right now. That's their heart. And I go, it can be your heart too. Don't just picture scoffers like I said out there. There's plenty of them out there, but that's not what he's addressing. Those scoffers aren't the one that destroys the church. It's the scoffing in my heart and in your heart, in this church and in another church. It's that scoffing that ultimately destroys, rips apart families, and infects people's lives and sucks, sucks the very joy and life out of them. That's the scoffing that God has to warn us about. That's the scoffing you read about in Revelation when you read about these churches that at one time had the presence of the Spirit and the lampstand of God light lit and burning brightly, but for various reasons and because of attitudes that they were unwilling to deal with, that lampstand, the lights begin to go out. And God says, I will remove that lampstand from your presence. And the question, of course, is will you even notice and know? And that becomes the challenge for any godly church, for any person in their individual life, to understand the presence of God so intimately that you would, not, you would notice immediately when it wasn't there. And you've got to understand, I have a, a new teacher at my school who was on this uh, senior retreat with us. And uh, uh, we went out on Sunday, and on Monday night, his wife and daughter came out for supper. And you kind of giggle because they're newlyweds. And his little girl's just pushing line, you know, pushing one and a half. And she's just this bundle of noise and talking and gibberish and everything else they do. And I said, oh, you're, they're coming. I go, it's my wife and daughter coming out for supper and going to spend some time with us. He said, well, that's cool. He said, yeah, I said, I just can't stand to be without them. I'm afraid I'd miss too much if I didn't get to see my daughter almost every day. He was totally sincere. I mean, he didn't say, hey, Bruce, you want to use this for a sermon illustration? All right? He was totally sincere, and I thought, oh, what, a, what an illustration of that intimacy that God wants with you. Would you notice if your wife wasn't there or your child wasn't there, now apply it spiritually? Would you actually notice if the spirit left? That there was no spirit in your marriage. That there was no spirit in your heart, in your love attitude toward your husband and wife. That there was no spirit in the ministries that you involve yourself in. Oh, you're busy. You're the pastor of the church. You're somebody else singing up here, whatever position you want to pick. But the spirit is gone, and you don't miss it. The same way this guy longingly said, I want to see them again, and I want to see my daughter and hold her on my lap. And he did that whole night that she was there while the kids did all the things that they had going on. But at that moment, you begin to understand, this is what God is trying to communicate to us. So it goes, where is the coming? They deliberately forget. They choose to reject that long ago, God, uh, by his word, created the heavens, and by his word, formed the earth out of water. And by those same waters, he deluged the whole thing and destroyed it. So he says, the same God who created it and brought it out of the water is also the same God who destroyed it, passing a judgment upon it. And what's the analogy Jesus always used for the second coming of Christ? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. 
The same thing you saw happen in the days of Noah is going to happen in the coming of the Son of Man. There will be a lot of people in churches, but none of them will believe. Is that possible for you? Are you married, and do you miss it when your wife's not around? Do you long for the presence of your children? Do you remember when you felt like that? Have you lost your first love? Do you really understand what it even feels like anymore? Or is it just some intellectual moment? Or is it something you truly remember? And more importantly, something you truly desire? And something that you want back in your life? Because as it says in Revelation, I have this thing against you. You've lost your first love. And the command, the directive by the Spirit there is you need to rekindle this. You need to seek after God. You need to open up those lines of communication again. You need to understand that you, that you have to come back into the presence of God. You've got to invite him back into your life because you've been too busy, willingly shutting him out, keeping yourself busy with all the other prattle and useless things that life can be filled with. And so the command, of course, is don't be that way. Learn to understand that process. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That, remember, kids, was over here? That judgment day when Christ returned, and he called back Abraham, and he called back the apostles, and skip me, and... <sighs> And he said to the, to the man over here, the rejecter, he said, I have no idea who you are. Depart from me. That's the message. As it was then, 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 it will be. Do not think God is slow in carrying this out. So he transfers the next thought, obviously a logical one. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Why is he speaking of that point? So that you don't get lethargic. So that you don't make the assumption that because of your life and the circumstances, uh, we were reading a book for men's study. And uh, uh, help me, guys. Who's it written by again? Uh, men in men's study. Who's it written by? Um, nope. <laughs> None of us can remember, huh? Max Lucado. Max Lucado said something kind of interesting the other day or in the study. And he talked about, he said, have you ever thought, you know, he said, I got on a plane the other day, and I sat down, and I said, I wasn't even worried about anything happening in the plane, because I knew God really needed me. Ever felt like that? And, well, he used it as an example of the stupidity he's capable of. Please don't understand. He wasn't saying, think like Max Lucado. He was simply saying, has this ever happened to you? That you somehow think you're better than somebody else, and, and God is really lucky to have you in his kingdom? and how fortunate he is, and certainly God could not get along with Bruce Harmon. Certainly other people will die before I do. Certainly, you ever have that kind of attitude in your own world? Like somehow you've got some irreplaceability? And so Max goes on to explain that's what had happened to King David, and then he asks the question, are you letting that happen in your life? Do you have, to, have you substituted an intimacy with God and a relationship with Christ for your own perception of how lucky God is to have you in his kingdom? And have you compared yourself to me or the other people sitting around you instead of to who you're supposed to be in the Lord? If you compare yourself to your wife or your husband who doesn't pray, you look like you're really a good prayer. If you compare yourself to somebody else who really struggles with getting along with his wife, you may perceive yourself to be a really good husband or wife. 
if you perceive and compare yourself to someone who is not committed to this particular ministry or that particular ministry, and you are, you can begin to tuck your hands under your suspenders and, and pull yourself up and say, I am really good, and God is lucky to have me. And at that point, you understand the dilemma, and the problem is you have lost your first love because your first love makes you understand, I can't get along without the Spirit. I don't want to go a moment without the Spirit. I long for the Spirit, and when the Spirit is not present in my dating life, and the Spirit is not present in my relationship with my spouse, and the Spirit is not present while I'm disciplining my children, and the Spirit is not present while I'm carrying on my ministry, and the Spirit is not present as I go to work and drive down the road, I miss Him, and I will stop, and I will pursue, and I will invite, and I will ask God for that freshening that I need again. Hello, dear, I need to see you today. Can you bring the kid out to camp so I can hold her and hug you and tell you how much I love you and treasure you? I'll be there, she responds. You understand? Is it a problem with the Holy Spirit? I'm sorry, Bruce. I haven't got any time for you today. Has God ever said that to me? No. Have I said it to him? Don't even begin to ask. Don't even begin to ask. And so I challenge to you, pick up the phone. Understand what it means to seek God with your whole heart again. Because otherwise, the dilemma begins to go like this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand this slowness, this slackness. He is unbelievably long-suffering. And here the translation of that word uh, uh, patient is long-suffering. That idea of bearing up with people's wickedness. Remember in the time of the flood, and he said, I've had no more patience with you, that's it. And he gave them five generations to get their act together. Can you imagine? I use that analogy with you to try and help you understand. I'm sorry. you got five generations. Your parents is the first one. You're the second one. And your children is the third one. And your children's children, that'll be it. And they need to change or I will take away what I've given you. The flood will come. The end will accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish there. And so he goes, I'm not, he's not slow, but he is, he's not wanting any to perish, but everyone to have that change of mind and change of heart, that metanoia, that repentance that's needed. So here you have the love of God, the same way you could feel as a parent for a child or a husband for a wife, knowing that you had to accomplish a certain task. God's got to take you, and how do you move someone who's comfortable? How do you move someone who's comfortable, right? You ever have one of those heart things where you go in and get a blood test and suddenly you got to change your sugar intake or you got to get more exercise or you got to lose another 30 pounds and it scares you enough that you're actually motivated? Is it possible that we can intellectually and spiritually come to those some kinds of conclusions without God having to do that? Dear God, please send a curse upon this church so that you want me to pray those prayers? Please uh, bring, bring down a sickness and a disease and a suffering upon the people so they begin to understand what intimacy with you is written. You want me to pray that prayer? You understand? God whispers to you, child, I need you. I need you to repent. I need you to long after those who aren't repenting. I need you to desire my presence. I want a fresh love with you. I want that first love back when you could hardly stand it when I wasn't intimately communicating with you. 
And if you've ever tasted that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you've never tasted it, you can't believe what God is capable of doing. And God whispers, you take the best moment, the best time, and he whispers and he says, that's still nothing. And so the challenge that we have for us is that comment. I long to be with you. I want none to be lost. I need you to get yourself ready. The challenge is in front of us. We receive it in the power of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we gather together in this place, I do pray, not for a curse, but for an open mind, for a rebuking of anything that would make me lazy, for a rebuking of anything that would shut the doors of my mind or my, my wisdom or anything else from the truth you're trying to reveal to me. Help me to hear the longing in your voice about how much you desire to be with us. Help us to uh, understand that you miss us when we fill our lives with the things that's so useless. Almost like a parent missing a child as they get busy with a lot of stuff that in the long length of their life won't be, won't or have no meaning at all. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would hear the tender love that you extend to us, the mercy that works its way into our hearts, and the truth that you want to pour into our lives. Lord Jesus, help us be a people of repentance, drawing closer to you, longing for that intimacy that you want us to have, and just let your grace fill this time. Pray this all in your name. As the offering is received, we pray God's blessing in that area of your life so that all of your finances are touched by the power of the Spirit and that you spend and don't spend according to the Spirit's guidance and will. If you're a guest or a visitor, we encourage you, please do not put anything in. We just appreciate you being here. You are our guest. And uh, if you need some, take it out. It doesn't belong to us anyway.